Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, but the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, August 27, 2012, and this is episode 968 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, today is Monday, Monday, and that means it's time for uh, your call, your actually your emails with comments, suggestions, articles you want me to commentate on, things like that, to jack at com. These shows lately have focused a lot on the economy. Today's show is going to be no exception. Next week, I'm actually going to make a really conscious effort uh, to make the listener feedback show not about economic issues. Uh, this week, I'm going to continue with it, and there's a reason I've been hammering on this lately, and I hope it's self-evident. Uh, but it is because I believe that I have two responsibilities uh, on this show to the audience, two primary responsibilities and a bunch of other smaller ones. The primary responsibility is to give you solutions. What can you do to prepare yourself for an uncertain future so you can live that better life no matter if times get tough or even if they don't? If things stay the way they are or get better, great. If they get worse, at least you're prepared for them. The other thing, though, is to point out the things that I believe are the biggest threats to our future. The economy is that right now. I don't know if we are in six months from a complete fiscal cliff. I don't know if it's two years, but I know it's not ten. And I'm, I'm starting to lean more and more lately toward you know the six months to one year timeline. And as I do that, I keep finding ways that they might kick the can a little further. And I look for every single way that they can kick the can further. And what's scaring me now is, I, yeah, I can still find them. But the measures that they can do it with only kick the can a little bit down the road now. I don't see any more two-year kicks. I don't see any three-year kicks at all. I don't, I don't see any five-year kicks. I certainly don't see any ten-year kick the can. Now, it's always possible they could pull a rabbit out of a hat, but I, I've always promised you that when I really thought it was time to batten the hatches down, I would say so, and that's what I've been doing lately, and that's what I'm going to keep doing, and that's why we're going to focus mostly on that today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Safe Castle Royal. Hey, you know why they call themselves Safe Castle? Because they help you turn your home into a safe castle. You're going to hear about a lot of things today that uh, are quite concerning. We can look at the rest of the world and we can see what happens there when these same things finally come to fruition. And if we realize we're humans and being American has a lot of things going for it, but it doesn't change laws like mathematics and the laws of humanity. So you might want to turn your house into a safe castle to be able to ride through this stuff. So check them out today. Everything you can think of for your prepping needs, you'll find at Safe Castle Royal. And remember, they are the original Survival Podcast sponsor, the very first people that stood up and supported this show formally. You can check out their website at prepared.pro, prepared.pro, or you can go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on their banner in the right-hand margin. That's the best way to visit Safe Castle or any of our sponsors. Remember also that they have a great discount buyers program. It's $50, actually it's $49, and then you get great discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But if you're a member Support Brigade member, you get that for free, which means that alone makes your first year of MSB cost a dollar. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or somebody else, or you get it on a sale, you actually make a profit from one benefit of the MSB. That's all thanks to Safe Castle. So whether you're MSB or not, please consider supporting them because they sure as hell support us and you. 
Next up today, backyard food production. You know, you can store food, but any any storage uh, component of anything is finite. You'll run out of space or you'll run out of money and likely both. So you need a method of production. Now, if you want to turn your backyard into a food production machine, if you want to know how to produce nutritious vegetables, carbohydrate crops, and protein, and do that in a backyard, get the DVD, Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm by Marjorie Wildcraft. Actually, it's now called Growing Your Groceries. It's been expanded and it's been updated, and it costs more than it did when I first started telling you about it years ago. There's a reason. They've added value, they've added more material, and they've added more information. Check them out today, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up, consider getting some TSP Copper, guys. It's some cool stuff. Uh, you got a lot of uh, opportunities to, to meet with family and friends coming up in the near future. We're going into fall. You can share messages like the Second Amendment, Ron Paul, Survival Podcast, Real Truth About Money, and uh, all other kinds of cool stuff. Very, very affordable, about $34 a roll and down. Uh, as you buy more or get certain patterns, check them out today at tspcopper.com. Remember, they are AOCS approved barter medallions with a AOCS barter value of two. Next up, please come see me in Hickory, North Carolina, man. I'd love to meet you guys. Uh, Scott and Ron are setting up a TSP meetup page for the early meetup. I'm scouting around some restaurants and bars and stuff like that. I found one right next to the hotel, but it, It doesn't seem, you know, I know bars are bars, but this one doesn't seem family friendly. It's, uh, it's, uh, some kind of like all the chicks are scantily clad, and that's fine with a bunch of guys drinking beer and talking about sports or whatever, but, uh, I'm gonna look for something a little bit better than that. Uh, anyway, it's called Iron Something. It's right next to a Harley Davidson place. I'm sure it's a great place, but it just doesn't seem right for this type of a meetup. So, I'll find something somewhere in that area that'll work out for us, uh, and, uh, try to get it within a couple miles of the, uh, convention center where the, uh, event is. And we'll try to do something Friday evening, uh, and possibly something Saturday evening as well. But we'll definitely have the early morning meetup, getting you guys in the doors early, 30 minutes early, uh, on Saturday morning. Full details about that out this week. And what Scott just told me is they're holding off on putting up the Facebook page because we might have a big-name guest coming uh, to our meet-and-greet. Don't know what that means yet. Let you know as soon as I do. All right, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into uh, your first email today. And the first one really isn't an email. This was a comment on the blog uh, from Friday's episode, and I was talking about some stuff to do with 401Ks and IRAs, and specifically with 401Ks, how many employers have removed any sort of a money market component. So there's no cash value fund. There's only bonds fund. That's what you're told is your safe harbor. And Agoro Culture uh, posted on the blog, and here's what he said. I suspect that some retirement accounts have already been partially nationalized, in a way, by being directed towards funds heavy in government bonds with no safe cash money market safe harbor option. Then he goes on to tell his own story or her own story, because I'm not sure if the Agoro is a male or female here, um, but basically how they had a, a plan that was blacked out and they couldn't do anything, and as soon as it was not blacked out anymore, uh, they basically stopped their contribution. So when I read that little sentence there, and I'm going to read it again, I had a, aha, what a dumbass you are, Jack, moment, like, You should have seen this yourself as you've been perplexed by what was really going on here. So let me read it again. This is like kudos to Agora culture. I suspect that some retirement accounts have already been partially nationalized in a way by being directed toward funds heavy in government bonds and no safe cash, money market, safe harbor option. Yeah, there you go. So when I was you know, still 
head of a company, and we had 401k plans presented to us to be given down to our employees, there was always a cash option. Always. And this would go back to the last time that I reviewed one as an employer and said, like, this will work for my employees. About 2006. Okay, so that's only six years ago. I know that seems like forever ago in the modern world, but that's not that long ago. And as an employee going all the way back to 1990, I always remember cash value funds available in 401ks. And even with the limited attachment, I still have to Franklin Spirico Media and the other stuff that my partner Neil does over there. I know that our plans still have that available in them. So it was really perplexing to me when I started hearing people say, yeah, Jack, mine doesn't have it. Yeah, mine doesn't either. Yeah, mine doesn't either. And there was a common thread. Most of the people telling me that, initially at least, worked for very large companies. So let's say you're the United States government and you need to keep up the illusion that large numbers of people are still willing to lend you money at ridiculously stupid low interest rates, you know, like 1%. And you're kind of running the tap a little bit dry. You can only have the Fed buy the debt back to a certain tune before it really starts to triple arms. You're getting a little less interest from people like the Chinese and the Japanese and the British who have been your biggest, you know, buyers of debt up till now. You're still getting some of that because as bad as it is, you still have the best deal in town as far as a safe harbor, but it's really not safe. And you know you're running out. Now, you've also floated ideas like this. Let's nationalize retirement accounts. Let's, let's seize 401k accounts. And when you did that, People got really, 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 really pissed off. And you acted as though you didn't know they would be really pissed off. And you said, yeah, we're not really going to do that. It's just a forward-looking thing, and we're taking an idea, and we would just put your money in bonds anyway and pay you out of the bonds, and it would guarantee. But if you don't want that, that's okay. What if that was just another typical magician's misdirection trick? What if all while you were doing that, you were using your influence through giant brokerage houses like Goldman Sachs, who administer all of these 401ks, especially to large employers, employers with 5, 10, 20,000 or more employees, and you use that to eliminate the money market cash value. And boy, do I have something about this coming up next that will tie this, this string together for you. And said, so, you know what, that's really not the best way for an employee, I mean, come on, bonds at least pay better than that. And if they're government bonds, they're as safe as it gets. Didn't George Bush tell us when he was talking about privatizing Social Security how even the safest government bonds paid better than Social Security? He was right, at least at the time. In fact, he's still right because Social Security now, for those of you that will be collecting in the future, has run, run negative. I, I covered that recently. So how could you push all of this money back into government bonds? How could you force the people of a nation to lend their own nation money under the guise of free choice? Well, in a turbulent market period, eliminate a cash fund equivalent in their retirement accounts, replace it with what you call the safest of the safe bond funds, which is mostly U.S. government bonds. The same bond they could go buy from the United States Treasury is the biggest instrument in the fund, end quote, fund, you know, quote, end quote, fund. 
And then what happens? Billions of dollars every year are added to the U.S. national debt, which is a good thing if you're the Fed and a good thing if you're the government because you need the money added because you need the new debt to turn over the old shorter-term debt. So what you're looking to do now is lock the people into a continuously recycling debt. So what you have your funds do is hold short-term government bonds. That way, as the bonds come to fruition, the people holding them in the fund just automatically turn the debt over every year. See, it's very important you understand this, this word I'm using here, turnover. Every year, a huge portion of U.S. government bonds, some short-term, some long-term, come to term. That means they've reached maturity. In general, when that happens, the bond is exchanged for money. Now, since the government doesn't have any money because we're $16 trillion in debt, the hope is much of that money will simply be reinvested, right? turned over. If too many people at maturity take the cash and walk away, the Ponzi scheme breaks down. So if you had the vast wealth, especially of the baby boomer generation, who's getting more and more conservative with their investments, forced into this government vehicle, While you called it private, would you not be, in a sense, nationalizing one component of private retirement accounts simply by removing the option for safety and replacing it with something you're calling safe but it's not quite as safe? Wow. And all I can think is, how did you miss that? And to be fair, I need to do a little bit more research. Here's what I need from you guys out there. I need you, those of you that are in this situation, especially if you work for a large employer, somebody with more than, let's say, 100 employees. If your 401k plan no longer has a cash value option, I want you to find out for me what the fund is in your 401k that your HR person or your financial liar, I mean, oh, financial advisor for the plan, your administrator, would recommend you put your money into for the safest option. And send me that, I don't need any prospectus or anything, just send me the ticker symbol for the fund. And I want to get about 10 or 12 of these. I know it's just anecdotal evidence, but it'll, it'll paint a pretty clear picture in reality. And I want to say out of maybe 10 or 12 large employer bond funds that are the safe harbor investment in your 401k, what percentage of the bond debt within that is U.S. federal government debt? And I also want to figure out something else. You don't have to worry about this. Just send me your ticker symbols. I want to figure out what percent is municipal debt. Because it's also a great way, is it not, to force money into municipalities like Los Angeles that nobody wants to buy debt from anymore. To take this private money and create a public bucket in it and call it safe and then tell the American people, hey, Go put your money there. This is a safe place inside your employment-managed private retirement account. Don't worry. We're not nationalizing it. Hey, Agoro Culture, kick-ass observation. I'm going to track it down and see where it leads. I have a sneaking suspicion where it leads. Now, I want to do something I normally don't do. I do it once in a while. I'd like to ask if you let that skim over your head, if you didn't really pay attention to the last 10 minutes, that you rewind and listen to it before you go forward. If you did listen to it, if it does make sense, if you do get it, 
pay very close attention to what I'm about to read to you now. This came in to me this weekend uh, from a listener. The listener's name is Cynthia. And she says, thought you might find this interesting. Cynthia, Susan G. on the forums. And it's a link to investors.com. Here's the subject. Fed proposal for money market would hurt savers. What was the word there? Money market. See, it used to be a dollar fund, basically a money market fund that was your safe haven in a 401k. They've taken it away in large part. In fact, I hear from more people now that don't have a cash fund than do within their 401s uh, and 403s. Okay? Now, think about that, and everything I just said as I read this. Chairman Mary Shapiro of the Security and Exchange Commission announced Wednesday she did not have the required votes among the SEC commissioners to proceed with their new proposed regulations on money market funds. In her statement, she then urged policymakers to, quote, act to address the systemic risk posed by money market funds. I want to stop right there a second. The systemic risk posed by money market funds. Money market funds are basically a big pile of cash with a very small interest rate to there and like a savings account. But she says they propose they they pose systemic risks. So your money out of stocks, out of bonds sitting in basically a stock fund that's stock in dollars. It's the best way to think of a money market account. Okay? <laughs> Poses a risk by sitting there and then by moving into different vehicles and back out. The place that's designed for cash to sit when not being forced into purchasing poses a risk. This is what this woman's saying. Just want you to make sure you understand that. Let's go back on now. This acknowledgement that any reform must be carried out by other regulatory bodies is appropriate. Other regulators have been pushing reform, even though Ms. Shapiro's commission is the only agency that has direct authority over uh, MMS, which are money market funds. The true agency pushing to reform has been the Federal Reserve System. Even though the Fed has no direct regulatory authority over money market funds, for the Fed has made it a top priority to impose new and, I might add, destructive regulations on MMFs. These proposed new rules represent self-initiated bailout for the Federal Reserve System itself, designed to protect the Fed from the consequences of its own mistakes over the past four years. Because the Fed owns so many long-term bonds at such low yields, any significant rise in market interest rates would result in a large drop in the value of the Fed's assets, driving the Fed into insolvency. What does that actually mean? What does that mean? That means the Fed's holding an ass load of bonds with stupid low interest rates that a lot of people, if money market accounts went up to pay like 2.5%, would say, why am I holding this 1% bond? Dump the bond on a liquid bond market or cash it in early, take the money and go stick it into a money market account. Why? Because it's perceived as safer. Because it's not based on debt. It's a pile of money versus a pile of debt. Of course, the money's dead on the back end, but you understand the intermediary. So the Fed is at risk right now that if there is any rise in interest rates, that all of the debt that they're holding at these low rates would come out, be extracted, 
and not be turned over and be invested elsewhere. And that the only way then that they could attract new money would be start paying higher and higher yields on the bonds. Do you really think they try to keep the interest rates low to help you? Huh? Now, let me continue to read this, and then we're going to tie all the ends together. Understanding the prospects of its own insolvency, the Fed has decided to force money that is typically lent to other borrowers to be lent to the United States government. Wait a minute! Let me read that one for you again. Understanding the prospects of its own insolvency, the Fed has decided to force money that is typically lent to other borrowers to be lent to the United States government. I'll just let that sink in if you think about what we just said, because this is another way they're doing it. The process known as financial repression, through targeted regulation, governments reduce the ratio of debt servicing costs to gross domestic product. The last time the United States saw anything like it was in World War II, when our government was funding the war to save the world, not its own precedent and plofragrancy, plofragrancy. I'm going to have to look this word up. I don't know what it means, but I, I, from context clue, remember that from school, I can tell you it means being a bunch of dumbasses. The proposed regulatory changes would establish reserve requirements and mandate that money market fund share values called net asset value or NAV be marked to market rather than held at fixed $1 level that has been the industry practice since money market funds were created in 1971. In other words, how much can you sell the fund for versus how many dollars are in it right now today? In theory, <laughs> you should be able to sell something for as many dollars are in it. There's shenanigans going on here, okay? This would reduce money market fund rates of return and undermine their role as highly liquid and stable alternatives to bank deposits and U.S. government debt as stores of value. The reserve requirement part of the new proposal would, of course, mandate that money market funds invest in more government debt. So now they want to force the money market fund that's generally just a liquid pile of money to put up a reserve held by U.S. government bonds. They say, you guys are risky with what you're doing out there. You just have this money. People put in, people take it out. You guys don't lend against it. It's just money. So, you, But you need to have a, a, a reserve requirement like a bank. So you need to take some of that money that's supposed to be liquid and make it illiquid by putting it into a government bond. <laughs> oh, God. Facing lower returns and floating NAV, many investors would move their money to the traditional banking system which is controlled directly by the Fed and has reserve requirements of its own, remove their funds directly in a short-term federal government securities. Yikes. So what they're saying is if they force down the return on money markets, that investors would look at their money and go, I can either throw it in the bank and get an interest rate that's about the same now because they've killed a little bit of gain I get in an in you know, and I get FDIC insurance and it's a little bit easier and a little less volatile. And then the bank, of course, has a reserve requirement. The reserve requirement is held mostly in government debt. You force the money into the banking system, you force the money into government debt. They have that whole little incestuous circle going on right now, okay? We talked about it in the past. So they're either going to force the money market money into the bonds directly or indirectly is what this is saying. Now, you can read the rest of this you want. It's pretty long. It gets into uh, a lot of detail. But here's what we know now. The Fed is trying to force people out of money markets, out in the private sector, 
this is your day traders, your institutional investors, all of these people that sit there and hold money. So even if I have a, uh, a mutual fund, and it's a small cap mutual fund, I probably have 1% or 2% of the billions of dollars I'm managing in cash at any one time. It's a very small percentage. But even with trades, when I decide, okay, I'm dumping this mid-cap stock and picking up this mid-cap stock, the money might sit there for just a little bit of time in that money market account between the two trades. Right? It might be that the investors made a smart call and knows I need to execute the sell at 2 o'clock and the buy at 3 o'clock. And that money might sit there for an hour. You don't think that's a big deal. It is when it's billions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars. So they're trying to force the money, whether it's institutional, whether it's private sector, whether it's government sector, no matter what it is, they're trying to force the money out of the money market accounts because it poses a systemic risk because the Fed is stupid. And the Fed has leveraged itself beyond capacity to withstand something like, oh, I don't know, money market's paying 4% again. We could get 4% on your money. Safe. It will kill the Federal Reserve. Now, if they can give you the 4%, they're okay with that. They can figure out how to do it without letting it happen on the other side. Basically, now they're in competition with any vehicle that would pull money out of the traditional reserve bank or pull money out of government bonds. They need it to stay in those two places. You ask why the money's not flowing? Because they can't let it flow. And then take this back to the 401k issue. And do you see the big picture now? Do you see what's really going on when we start to look at this? The government knows that the people in this country will not tolerate it sticking their hands into the individual personal finance. So they create the illusion of free choice, A or B, and as the picture I just put on the on Facebook explained, it doesn't matter whether the cow chooses A or B, the end of the hallway is where the slaughterhouse is. So they, they tell you in your 401k you're completely free, but when you're scared shitless of the stocks and securities, and you bail over to what they call safe, you're loaning money to your government at like you know one percent interest, whether you want to or not. If you have your if you have larger amounts of money, and you traditionally are somebody that trades in stocks, bonds, etc., they're going to now try to force you out of the money market with a little bit better of return while your money's sitting to force you into a reserve requirement bank, or to basically turn the money market account into a reserve bank, even though it doesn't behave like a reserve bank. All of it's designed to push the money in. They want to print the money at the top, and they want you to shove it back in at the bottom. And as long as they can keep doing that, they can keep kicking the can a little bit further. That's what I was talking about at the beginning of today's episode. So the one thing that gives us some hope for some planning time is that's clearly a long-term plan. The, the, the bad side is, I don't think it's enough to pull it off. But that's what they're thinking, that if they can get enough investors, especially people crossing that threshold of about 45 to 50, where you go into a more 40% fixed income, 60% securities, or maybe even flip that ratio, and you're just thinking, I'm in these safe bonds, but you're being forced into government bonds. Is it really any different... Is it really any different than if the government just took the account and put 40% in the bonds? If they could trick enough people into doing it on their own, 
All right. So now the next email that I got is really economic centric. It's an article. It was out on LouRockwell.com. What do you hear? What I got to read in now is uh, sent to me by Gary, and it is written by a gentleman named Jeff Thomas. Ignore, and it's called "Ignoring the Obvious." Actually, it's called "After the Storm." Uh, he recently wrote "Ignoring the Obvious." That's what it says. But I'm not going to read the whole article. But he breaks down the stages of a financial crash. And I'd like you to listen to them and think about where we started, where we're at, and where we all think we might be going. Number one, initial crashes. Crash of the residential property market, crash of the commercial property market, and crash of the stock market. Hmm. Two, initial knock-on effects of the crashes. In other words, first these three things happen, and then they cause the next three things to happen. Loss of homes, loss of jobs, and inflation. Hmm. Three, immediate actions by government. This is historical, by the way. This I know it sounds like, hey, this guy's just writing what happened. No, this is historically what happens in a crash. Okay, so first thing, immediate actions by government after a crash are bailouts for select groups, dramatic increases in the debt, Politicians going the opposite direction of a real solution. It continues on. The first knee-jerk reaction began immediately with the government attempting to make the problem go away as quickly as possible. Almost inevitably at this stage, the corrective strategy is hastily prepared and short-sighted, assuring further deterioration of the economy. In this stage, the politicians on both sides fail to focus on a real solution. Instead, their primary focuses are, first, to avoid the painful real solution, and second, to engage finger-pointing. Each political party blaming the other for the problem. The problem worsens steadily until one of the next series of major dominoes falls. This usually sudden and is usually sudden and triggers the toppling of other dominoes. So stage four, second wave of the crashes. Major crash in the stock market. So that's the double dip that's characteristic of every major depression. There's always been a double dip. Sometimes the dips are far apart. Sometimes they're closer together. Then, in the second stock market dip, that's when the currency value plunges. That's the next thing on his list. Then bankruptcies increase and unemployment increases beyond what happened in the first wave. And remember, this is not either or, this is progression. Then number five, once we're into that stage, that's when things get really hairy. International trading partners react. Foreign countries refuse to accept more debt. Foreign trade slows dramatically. At this point, the government introduces dramatic change, such as ill-conceived protectionism, which backfires almost immediately. So what they say is, all right, these jerks don't want to import stuff to us. The stuff they do want to import, we're going to put a big-ass tariff on it. We're going to encourage business at home. We're going to fix this. We're going to fix this by building our local economy. Like That's what you should have been doing for the past 100 years while you've been destroying it. They just say that, and they go into protectionism. Next, six. Government institutes desperate, self-destructive measures. First thing they do is start to default on key debt. It just says defaults on debt. But what governments do in these cases, they don't default on all the debt. They pick people to say, these people don't deserve their money anyway, but we're going to pay all the other people. <laughs> Guess who that usually is? Restrictive tariffs on imports and currency controls. Currency controls is where they say, you know what, you won't be exchanging your dollars for euros or whatever. Exactly what they're doing in Argentina right now. It is almost impossible to convert the peso to a dollar down in Argentina. 
You will you, you will earn pesos, you will spend pesos, you will pay tax in peso. You will not use foreign currency in Argentina. That's a currency control. Okay. Seven. The economy racks in lockstep to the government's actions. Hyperinflation, dramatic increase in food and fuel costs, massive unemployment. Now it's not just bad. Now it's massive. Extensive foreclosures and extensive bankruptcies. That's when we really go into meltdown. At this point, the dominoes are tumbling quickly and rapid unraveling of control is about to take place. Eight, systemic collapse. Banks start to close, extensive homelessness, food and fuel shortages, electric power becomes sporadic, and blackouts become common. All these factors unravel. The public mood turns to a combination of blind fear and anger. That leads to stage nine, social collapse. Crime rises dramatically, particularly street crime, food riots, tax revolts, and squatters' rebellions. Occupy Wall Street, anyone? You guys realize that's really what it, that's what the fringe edge of Occupy is, is a squatters' rebellion? People just pull up and say, hey, we're just going to hang out here. All right? Stage 10, Marshall. Now, by the way, I'm not saying we're in stage 9. I'm saying that's, that's, that is like uh, foreshadowing. A lot of these things that happen big time start to occur little time in earlier stages is what I'm saying. Stage 10, martial law. Creation of a special army to address, quote, domestic terrorism, and random killings become commonplace. At first, the authorities focus mostly on violent subjugation and arrest, then as prisons quickly become hopelessly overcrowded, camps become the norm. Soon, these two become unmanageable, particularly as a result of the high cost of food and manpower. At this point, the solution turns to killing anyone who is suspected of a crime, and more frequently, anyone who is not submissive. These will not resemble the Gestapo of the late 1930s. It will be less organized and more chaotic. 11. Revolution. If revolution occurs, it will happen at this point. Many people will feel they have nothing to lose, and anger will be at its peak. If revolution does place, take place, it will not be an organized movement as such. It will be spontaneous, and breakouts will manifest themselves like popcorn popping, largely at random, with ever-increasing frequency. At some point, it may possibly evolve into something more organized. In other words, a strong leader who's charismatic may show up at that point, channel the anger and aggression of the people, and actually install a more totalitarian, supposedly better off state, and everything that's not quite right, he'll say, hey, it's better than it was six months ago. So that's the stages of an economic breakdown, an economic collapse based on historical precedence. Huh. Where do you think we're at there, folks? Would you say we're somewhere along the lines of the... Third, immediate actions by government. Basically, somewhere between bailouts and increasing our debt and politicians going in the opposite direction of a real solution, which may mean that our second wave of our crisis would be another major crash in the market, currency plummeting, increased bankruptcies, and increased unemployment. There were somewhere between stage three and stage four. When I read this, I don't have another place to put us, right? The foreign countries are still refuse, are not refusing to accept our debt. Foreign trade is still going on pretty well. Um, we're not defaulting on our debt as I move into the later stages. We're not there. We've definitely ticked all the boxes of the first three, though. The residential property market, the commercial property markets both crashed. The stock market crashed. People have lost tons of homes and jobs, and there's been inflation. It's been somewhat mitigated because the money's been locked up. We just talked about why, but there's inflation. If you don't think so, ask a single mom feeding two kids. She'll tell you all about inflation. And then the government came in, bailed out selected groups, 
the, the increase in debt is like if you don't see that, I can't. I mean, in the last four years, the debt's grown more than existed before the last four years. It's 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 insane. Um, if you take Bush and Obama together, they racked up more debt than every president from freaking George Washington to Bill Clinton combined, significantly more. So yeah, we we kind of did that, didn't we? And politicians going the opposite direction of a real solution. Do you see either Democrats or Republicans actually addressing the problem? And then the knee-jerk reaction will begin immediately. The government attempts to make the problem go away as quickly as possible. Inevitably at this stage, a corrective strategy is hastily prepared and short-sighted. Trillion-dollar stimulus, anyone? Assigning further deterioration to the economy. In this stage, the politicians on both sides fail to focus on the real solution. Instead, their primary focuses are first to avoid the painful real solutions. Let's not talk about what we really have to do to fix this. And second, to engage in finger-pointing at each political party, blaming the other for the problem. The problem worsens steadily until one of the next series of major dominoes fall. There you go. Uh, I think reading this article in its entirety may be one of the most important things you can do for yourself this week. I think accepting kind of where we're at in this like life cycle. And I, I really want to explain something. It's great that this article stretches this out over 10 stages. Okay? And I think that's important because people panic and they think they're completely out of time. I do want to point out that as you move into the stage four and beyond, you'll get an acceleration of the curve. Right? When we go into the second dip, If something doesn't stop it right away, getting into foreign countries refusing to accept more debt, and in some ways we're already on the other side. Because the reality is there's no way that they can sell enough debt to China and, and Japan and the UK to keep things going right now. They're doing the shenanigans I started out with about. I, I never thought about how much money was being forced into government bonds through the 401k system, but it's got to be billions of dollars, and the Fed buying its own debt. It's the biggest holder of debt in the world now. So we're cheating because we're the reserve currency, so in some ways we haven't entered stage four yet, but in other ways we're already seeing stage five, but we're hiding it. And by the way, QE3 is on pace. It's just rocking on right now, as I covered earlier this week. So... um I hope you have a, just a complete new understanding now about where we're at, how we got here, and what's being done that you don't know is being done. Um, I, I know that when I read that one comment about the 401ks and the bonds being the safe option and those bonds being those funds being highly leveraged into government debt, it completed the puzzle for me. And then, like magic, a listener sends the thing about the money market accounts. Then I look at this this breakdown of a financial collapse, and I realize where we're at. And I think at this point in the show, I want to shift to some more like positive solution oriented things. Um, so I want to tell you about something that I was sent, and it is by uh, Earthship.com. Now, for those who don't know what an Earthship is, it's a really cool way uh, to build a house out of recycled materials. Generally, it's built out of things like concrete and mortar and tin cans and bottles for some of the walls, but the majority of it is built out of tires. 
So you take these tires and you ram them full of earth and you arrange them to form the walls of the structure. You get a very energy efficient, very strong building uh, that would probably stand up to just about anything that could ever happen to it. Uh, some people build these things out in the middle of the desert where they can be left alone and be allowed to do these things. And even in desert climates with the way the roofs are designed, they harvest all their own water. The water is used multiple times. They run 100% on solar energy. Even in hot co climates due to their earth contact, they remain very cool uh, and very comfortable. And we should be building them all over the freaking United States of America. But as I've been on a tangent about lately, one of the biggest things holding back alternative housing, which would include things like pallet houses, tiny houses, um, earth ships, earth, sh earth sheltered homes, uh, geodesic domes. I mean, I could just go on and on. All of these alternatives that we know work really well is regulation. Hard to build and hard to finance. Well, The hard to finance, I don't have a solution for you yet, but I'd like to see some enterprising entrepreneurs out there uh, maybe do that. But what I got from somebody, let's see who sent this to me so I give due credit, from Roger. Roger sent me this, uh, and it says, it's pockets of freedom. And it says... A green county doesn't mean inertia, is there? Green counties are places where acquiring permission to build is not a bureaucratic, expensive mess. So it's a map of the whole country. And as you move around it, you can see little green pockets. And these green pockets are where if you want to build one of these types of housing units, apparently it's a lot easier. And I'm shocked at where some of them are. Florida actually has a county. Uh, I'm not sure what county that is. It's, uh, it's a little bit hard to read. It's... Just It's on the Gulf Coast north of Lee County by one, two counties. So it's a third county north of Lee. And I know Lee well because we have such fond memories of Sanibel. But, you know, Florida isn't a place that I would have suspected. There's two counties in Georgia, two in South Carolina, quite a few in Tennessee, I'd say half a dozen. Uh, and then if it's white means basically it's not reported yet. Red means don't go here. Like this is not free. Pennsylvania is like 70% red, but 30% green. Uh, New York has one, two, three, four counties. One actually not far off of being down by New York City in the five boroughs. Uh, it, it, it's kind of really shocking to me. I, I when I look over at like Wisconsin, there's quite a few. Uh, Minnesota's got quite a few. Uh, Wyoming is almost all green with a few exceptions. Colorado is like 50-50 and then a bunch of white which are unknown. New Mexico which is like Earthship Ground Zero, basically the whole center of the state uh, is green. Texas has a lot of green but it's all in the places that most of us don't really want to probably live. Not all of it but a lot of it's out there in the uh, the rough part of the desert. There's two counties in East Texas, though, that show up as pockets of freedom. There's one in Oklahoma, two in Oklahoma. So you can look at this for yourself. I'll put a link in today's show notes. But I just wanted to give you guys some encouragement to maybe have one of these off-grid ideals uh, that there are some places out there where this can be done. Now, what would be ideal to me is if you could find a place where this could be done and you could get high-speed Internet and build a community around it. Because I think one of the biggest things holding back these communities that are not, you know, right adjacent to a major metroplex or something like that, which I think would be ideal from, like, springing up and being developed out, is one, the regulations, but two, is money. 
And if you can get people that are able to conduct business from home, whether it's by employment or self-employment, then that hurdle becomes you know, something that's not that big of a geography issue. So a sweet spot to me would be where could you find land in one of these little green areas where you can let people build however they want, be as off-grid as they want, but also be on-grid at the same time. So anyway, check this out. Earthship.com, by the way, is a cool site. Check out their pockets of freedom. And they're looking for help. If you know of a place that is free or not free, let them know and they'll continue to fill in their map. Okay, so let's move on to something else that's kind of positive in nature. If I told you that there's a state out there with a prosecutor in it that is basically saying some people are being arrested for gun charges in that state and that prosecutor feels that those charges in of themselves are unconstitutional because the law is unconstitutional, and people that he could send to state prison for significant periods of time for violation of things like possession of a firearm, that prosecutor standing up saying, nope, not going to do it. Um, if somebody's arrested in my district with that, I'm just not going to prosecute them. Now, if they have a gun and they're like robbing a store and they didn't have to pull the gun, we'll use that. Or if they're a, you know, a known gangbanger that's been arrested six or seven times, shouldn't be in possession of a weapon in the first place. But, you know, if somebody's driving through our city and gets pulled over and they weren't aware that we had a, a, a law against that and they get pulled, I'm just not going to prosecute them. Where would you think that was? Does that sound like Illinois to you? Well, apparently it is. Let me read this to you. Springfield, Illinois. Despite a statewide ban on concealed weapons, gun owners in one central Illinois county don't need to worry about facing charges because its top prosecutor is refusing to enforce a law he considers unconstitutional. Illinois is the only state that still bans residents from carrying concealed guns. McLean County State Attorney Ronald Dozier calls the law antiquated and says Wednesday that he hopes his policy against prosecuting harmless violations will send a message. Can somebody tell me if that's true? Is Illinois the only place you can't get a concealed carry permit anymore? I know D.C. you can't, but what about New York? Like, are they including cities in this or just states? So I'd like to know, is that accurate? Because it seems a little, I don't know. I just feel like there's more places like that. But maybe it's city. If it's a city thing, it doesn't count. Is this this Illinois the only state with a complete ban on concealed carry? Because I know some states have it, but it's like you got to be somebody really special to get one. So let me go back to it. Um... Uh, I, I feel, quote, I feel felt like I was just wanted to make a statement to the legislature, said Dozier, a retired judge who was appointed the state's attorney in December and plans to step down in October. So he's only there till October, so don't get real comfortable if you live in this county. And legal experts say he's completely within his rights. As a prosecutor, Dozier has the power to decide which cases he will and won't pursue, Though it, it was unusual to publicly announce that a whole class of offenses is off the table, American University law professor Angela Davis said. Also rare is basing that decision on the prosecutor's own opinion that the law is invalid, she said. Quote, I'm not saying it's never been done before, but it's certainly not common, said Davis, author of Arbitrary Justice, the Power of the American Prosecutor. Dozier believes many states' attorneys have primarily deci- privately decided not to pursue charges against people who violate some of Illinois' gun laws, such as failing to properly store a gun or allowing their state-issued firearms owner identification card or FOID card to expire. But he said he decided to tell the public about his policy and make it clear that it extends to violations of the law against carrying a concealed weapon to encourage changes in a state law. The governor isn't pleased and suggested Dozier abide by his oath of office. Hold on, his oath of office is to follow the law, but it's also it's also to make judgment 
and whether or not the law applies. Okay? You have a duty to respect the law, Governor Pat Quinn, a Chicago Democrat, said Wednesday. <laughs> If you don't agree with the law, we have procedures where you can challenge the law properly. But a fellow Democrat who supports legalizing concealed carry, there's one of them, there's a Democrat for concealed carry, Representative Brandon Phelps in Harrisburg in southeastern Illinois predicted the state's attorneys in areas like where guns are popular now will face pressure to follow Dozier's lead. A lot of voters in those areas, especially at town hall meetings, are going to say, what's your position on what McLean County State Attorney General did, Phelps said. Dozier, who served in McLean County State Attorney from 1976 to 1987, said he's not urging anyone to carry a weapon or break the law. Police in the area say they will continue to arrest people if they see violations. You can read the rest of it if you want, but here's why I see this as a solution. It's not a complete solution. But have you ever heard the phrase, there's more than one way to skin a cat? So one of the ways that like Sheriff Mack and Oath Keepers specifically have been telling us we can make a dramatic impact through the, the electoral process, is it's not focusing on the national election so much and whether Ask Clown A or Ask Clown B will be the Ask Clown to ruin what's left of the country and focus on things like sheriff's elections. Because sheriffs are the, the, the top law enforcement official in their county. And they have a lot of say over what gets enforced and what doesn't get enforced. So they also are the ones that would turn around and stand up to the state or the federal government and say, you're not doing that here. This is against our state and our county's laws. Well... In a lot of places, you know, people that are prosecutors are elected. So is that another way that we can fight for rights, liberty, and independence? If there's no teeth in a law, then a law doesn't have much validity. So it's just another way that we can get politically active. And maybe some of you more libertarian-minded attorneys out there need to look at running for office not to make law, but to make sure that law is executed properly And that makes sure that people that are honest, law-abiding citizens that are breaking the law only because it violates their individual rights are prosecuted for it. Hmm. That sounds like a noble endeavor. I want to finish on something really upbeat today. I want to finish on something a listener sent me. Again, let me see which listener this was. This was Richard. Richard sent me this, and it's called Message to Humanity. And it's on a YouTube channel from somebody called We Are Change. I haven't looked into this person, but I have a feeling that there's quite a bit of politics that we might disagree about. But he set out a challenge to people, and it was, if you had a message for humanity, if you could tell people one thing about how they can make the world better, about how they can change the world, um, then what would it be? So I'm going to go ahead and play that for you now. I'm going to come back with some final thoughts, and we'll wrap up for the day. But I do want to give a quick warning. Some of these young people use words that you may not choose to uh, listen to, uh, words that you might find offensive, and specifically words even I don't very often use. Like you can tell at times it's the F word. I'll tell you that they do that, but it's all bleeped out. So it's all you know, bleep, bleep, right? So it, it doesn't happen a tremendous amount of time. There's certain segments of it where it seems to be there a lot where they're expressing some genuine anger. So I, I, it is censored, but yet it's there, and you would know what's being said if you knew the words, right? So if any of you find that to be too much for your children, you've been so warned, and now here we go. Hello, Luke. My name is Frank Soma. Hey, my name is Paul Bauer. My name is Gigi Bowman. It's Michelle from We Are Change Calgary. 
Daniel here. Elise here. Daniel Vincent Kelly here. This is Chris Custer. My name is Star. Spencer, we are Change right here. Hi, uh, my name is Mike. Leave a line in here. This is Mike from We Are Change Milwaukee. This is a video response to to We Are Change's video from Luke Radowski. He has apparently a one birthday wish. His birthday wish was for everyone to make a video response. But your uh, question for your birthday was, if I could tell humanity or the world one thing, what would it be? And I said, well, um... Um... What I would tell the world? I would say, uh... Alright. I can't tell you what to do. I can't tell you what's best for you. I can't tell you what's gonna save the world. Or anything like that. But... Relax. Think. Slow down. And most of all, wake up. Wake the f*** up. And to be concerned about something much more greater than ourselves. Turn off the f***ing TV and take up a cause. Turn off Dirty Shore. Turn off f***ing Desperate Housewives. And take up a cause. The world really isn't what it seems like. And, and, and what they actually are told in the media. Uh, for the most part, isn't really what's going on. You know, we've been lied to through media, politicians, school, the entire freaking education system. Our opinions and our beliefs can easily be manipulated by the mainstream media. And in today's society, we're facing uh, a crisis in what is right and what is easy. You must think critically. You must apply your intelligence critically to everything you do, every action that you take, and every word that you speak. So make sure you find the answers inside yourself and come up with your answer, not somebody else's. Please go and do your own research. I say knowledge is power and don't be afraid to seek it. This next decade is going to be marked by instability. A lot of change is going to come. A lot of change is truly inevitable. We have to plan for the future. We know what's happening. We know what's going on. We're on the wrong track. We should be working together and not seeing who can get the most out of who. We are responsible for each other. Today, we lost that same compassion, that love, that trust that should have as a world community, no matter what condition or circumstances come our way. The only truth is that we're all in this together, with questions rooted in the very essence of our being, still unanswered. Stop seeing separation. Stop seeing race. Stop seeing gender. Stop seeing sexual preference. I do not care what color you are, as your smile is universal. I do not care what religion you are, as it strengthens the light of every miracle. I do not care about your weaknesses, as it makes your strengths so remarkable. Despite all of our differences, we rise and fall together as one. It's up to each one of us to protect the civil rights and liberties of everybody. Try to put yourself in the other person's shoes and realize that we are all human beings and that we all have one subjective goal is that 
survival, basically, and, uh, and also evolution. And try to help this natural evolution concur or come to fruition on itself. Get out there, meet new people, see new places, and expand your mind. Don't limit yourself to where you are and what you're doing. And don't think of people that you haven't met as strangers. Think of them as friends you have not talked to yet. You're not as powerless as you think. You're not as weak as you think. And more importantly, you're not alone. You know? We're all part of this human experience, of this human tapestry. And that's something that should be celebrated. So live your life well. You know, love, forgive, and respect. But just never forget, you're not alone. If we all want our freedom, we all need to treat each other with love, respect and dignity and make sure we look at everyone as each other's brothers and sisters. We are all in this together. Love. Try to keep them smiling because it's impossible. Love one another. Bring love back into the world. Stop fighting, going to war, hating each other, come together as one. It can only be wars if we pick up the guns and kill people. We need more justice in the world. Sometimes your paths will lead you to a fork in the road where on one hand there's life, love, and light at the end of that tunnel. And on the other hand there is darkness, death, and destruction. And we all want truth. So if I could say one thing, I would say, choose wisely. Now is the time to choose negativity or positivity. We need to take a stand together and be better. Uh, we need to organize in the city centers that everybody needs to come out into the streets. We have to stop being apathetic to corrupt governments and just evil in general. Be for us to know who the real enemy is and for us to stand up against them together. Question authority and stand up to unjust governments and just follow your dreams. Don't forget your humanity. Love is a strength, not a weakness. Stop fighting and just start loving each other because that's what really matters in life. Love unconditionally and dance like there's no one watching because death is the endless time of never coming back. Try to do good for humanity because life is short. You don't have a lot of time here. So you. Try to do something positive, you know? Nobody knows where we go for a fact when we die. But we all know that that is, that's coming. So while you're on this earth, if you spent all your time loving yourself, learning about who you are, what you're capable of, what, what we can do as, as an individual, the rest of the world would be grand because everybody would be unique to themselves to be completely honest with your own self. You are what you are created to be masters of the universe. You were created to be something great and that you have within you the ability to achieve greatness. Remember who you are. You are infinite potential, infinite awareness. You don't have to follow the line of fear in your everyday life. Your thoughts create your reality. We have so much more power over our lives than we've been led to believe. And once you realize this, you can begin to create the beautiful life that you all deserve. Each and every one of us has all the power of the universe at our disposal. And uh, the key is uh, just knowing that, once you know that, man, crazy things can happen. You strive above the status quo, influence, and inspire. Never let hate guide you. No matter what happens, just 
stoked about keep going there's nothing to lose you know all you can do is, is, is make a difference now we're all one in this universe and you have inside you to make that change and until you know what kind of world you want to live in it's never going to happen until you dream it make the world a better place open your mouth and your ears that life is what you make it to be the change you want to see in the world you are the difference you don't have to go out and be some hero or anything but just get out there with your camera with your cell phone with your computer and do what you got to do to make this world a better place we are change starts with you you need to step up make this evolution happen. If you're looking for solutions to today's problems, look in the mirror. You are the solution. You have the power as a human being on this planet right now. Be the change you wish to see in this world. You hold the key. Once, once you do that, you're going to realize that the only way you can't make a difference is if you don't try. Listen to your hearts. And I wouldn't know what else to say. Be happy. That's pretty cool. Um, I want to say that there was parts of it where the speaker was lower than the music and the music was too loud and all. And I think the person that made the video would have been better suited to make that background music a lot quieter. But there's no way I can change that. So that's why that was that way. And I'd like to caution some people right now that I know probably rolled their eyes a time or two here because you can tell by the voices that a lot of these people are like 18, 19, 20, 22 years old. And, you know, there is a bit of a cliche in a 19-year-old quoting Gandhi. Um, we've all seen it, and we all know that sometimes it's not quite what it's led up to believe, or there's an idealism there that just isn't going to be realized or what have you. But I want to remind everybody out there, especially people in my age bracket, you know, the 40-somethings, the 50-somethings, we were all that age once, and we were all full of dreams once, and at least they're dreaming about good things for a change, aren't they? And... If some of you listen to some of this and say that's too much of an ideal, like we can't get there, if you feel that way, first of all, I don't necessarily agree that we can't get there, but I think the solution might be a lot more complicated and a lot more long-term than a lot of young idealistic people believe it is. When you're 20, anything's possible. That's good, and it has some drawbacks. But it's the, the good outweighs the drawbacks. The, the good is is what really drives that generation to become something, and I want you to realize that for a lot of people that are turning to you know, 20, 22, 23 right now, it's a scary world. They were promised all throughout their childhood, go to school, get good grades, you'll get a good job, you'll be like dad, or you'll be like mom. And the reality is not what they were promised. It's not even close. But yet many of them are waking up and deciding, you know what, screw it, we're going to make a difference, we're going to do something, I'm not going to sit here and take this shit. I'm going to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. And some of them will probably lean off toward the side of the solution that we'd prefer that they were you know, somewhere else. But you won't get them on your side of thinking by not taking them seriously. And I'll also tell you this. If you got the impression by listening to this, there's a bunch of left-leaning individuals. I looked at their website. They say they're nonpartisan. And I can say that the only politician that I saw them say anything nice about was Ron Paul. That was about it. Uh, they don't seem to like the Republicans or the Democrats, so uh, I kind of like that. To me, that gives people an air of credibility. Uh, but even if they didn't, even if that wasn't the case, the sentiment, I think, is still important. And I think the concept of having a new generation starting to ask for something not just better, 
but a whole lot better. Not just more equitable, but a whole lot more equitable. Understand we can have equitable society without taking away from people who have achieved. In fact, I would say when you take away from those who have achieved, you have the last thing in the world close to equitable. Most of these kids are not asking to be given something. And I don't just mean this group of kids here. I mean this group of kids, this this generation coming up today. I've met many of them in many different venues. And they're not asking to be given something. They're asking for an opportunity to get something. And I think that is very, very constructive. And I would also say this, this higher ideal, this almost like it's, I know you want that kid, but you know, the real world doesn't work. Let me tell you something. As a coach, as a teacher, as an instructor, this is completely metaphoric because I've never taught people how to jump over bars. But the best way that I know to get a person to clear a, a four foot bar is to have them try to clear a five foot bar. If I push you to a level that you really aren't going to get to, but I push you to believe that you can get there, I'll take you to levels that you would have never achieved without that, without that additional effort, without that higher ideal. Those that live by a spiritual creed, whether it's you know a faith or what have you, generally speaking, most people have a spiritual creed, a spiritual belief system, a, a, a system of, of laws and ethics that govern the way that they should live their lives. They strive to do that, but they always fall short. They always fall short. They always make mistakes. They always don't quite pull it off. They always, you know, in most faiths, seek some sort of a forgiveness. Now, this is not a lecture on religion because I'm about as non-religious as a guy can get. But I understand and respect that viewpoint. So then why do they have this higher level of expectation, this level that nobody ever reaches but everybody strives for? Because striving for it makes you a better person. Seeking perfection, even if you can't obtain it, gets you closer, not further from the mark. As long as you accept the fact that there will be some failures. So when these kids talk about creating a new world, a new society, with a lot of the things we'd all like to see in it, and you have a tendency to think, yeah, that's nice, but don't do that so much. Again, those of you that are 40, 50, remember what it was like. When you believed anything was possible. And for many of you, I can simply point out how effective that is by asking you, how much have you achieved? Maybe you haven't achieved it at the global, national level, but I bet you've achieved it in your life. And that's what we need is more and more people taking control of their lives and achieving these, these, these levels of attainment, this, this, this new concept that's actually an ancient one, that we should all just be decent to each other regardless of what we look like or where we're from, and that we should all get as close to get along, get, get, as, get as close to getting along as we possibly can, and that maybe we don't need big bad government telling us how to do it. Maybe we can freaking work that out for ourselves. And let me tell you what, these young people have one thing right, the way we need to be thinking about how we deal with each other. I want to tie it back in a circle now as we finish up today. I told you about the stages of an economic collapse and about finger-pointing and blame and how people create factions. We can either have the attitude you just heard tempered with some more mature wisdom of the generations that have already been there and done that. We can have a climate of blame 
and it's the other side's fault. Given that we're going to have to put this thing back together after they get done finally destroying it, which one's going to work better? And with that, I'll tell you that I think some of these young people, while a tad bit overly idealistic in a few places, are certainly on to something when it comes to facing the reality that we're all going to deal with. I'll bring up one of my new favorite quotes to you yet again from the late Stephen Covey. We are free to choose our actions, but we're not free to choose the consequences of our actions. Going forward, we can choose our actions and thereby we can accept the consequences that are going to come. But in the past, the actions have been taken, the consequences are on the way. The only thing we control is this day forward. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Yeah.